Hello, my geeselings. It's Mother Goose here, aka the Pale King, aka Robinson Earhart. This reminds me of in French class in high school. I had this horribly evil, mean, cruel witch of a French teacher. And for some reason, I don't know why I did this, I started signing my name, Maitre Robinson instead of Robinson Earhart, so Master Robinson. And I definitely got a call home for that from that. She was she was very upset by me referring to myself as Master Robinson in her class. And may, maybe she should have been. Anyway, this is episode 11, or the introduction to episode 11, with Haim Gaifman, the only Haim Gaifman in my life. And I gave him a, or the glowing introduction he deserved in episode one. He's the first of many repeat guests on the show. So without going into that huge introduction again, he's a a philosopher, a mathematician, a logician, a linguist, a computer computer scientist, a probability theorist. I think that, or I've had this thought before, that if this were a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, he would be an Aristotle or an Archimedes or a, a Newton or something like that. He's just a tremendously smart guy and a great teacher. In this episode, we talk about Alice in Wonderland, Bertrand Russell a figure that Heim's been studying for a while and who's grown on him immensely over the years. And also, and mostly, we talk about paradoxes. Heim wanted me to mention that he's taught a course on paradoxes in the past, but hasn't taught it for several years. And I also gave him no advance notice on the topic, but he still does, a, I think, a phenomenal job We've already recorded a couple more episodes that I will release in due time. But without any further ado, my geeselings, I hope you enjoy this episode. So... My first question for you today, Haim, yeah. is you've told me a number of times an anecdote from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Because you, you like to say that you've spread yourself too thin with your work. Because you've done work in computer science, mathematics. Philosophy of language and so on and so on. Vagueness, all of these things. And you, yeah. have, a, you have a story about the night on yeah, horse. yeah, yeah. Can right. you tell me? Can you tell me that again? Yes, you know there is. Uh, uh, this is not from Alex in, Alice in Wonderland, but this is from Alex, Alice through the Looking Glass. You know, uh, Louis Carroll wrote uh, several Alice books. The most known is Alice from Wonderland, which is considered the best. But from the Looking Glass is also very extremely interesting. Now. Uh, in this book, various figures which uh, 
represent uh, chess pieces appear and it turns out that uh, part of the plot of uh, the book there has to do with uh, moving things on the chessboard and uh, the, uh, eventually uh, Alice uh, gets to the last I think Alice is with the white and then there is a black or the red I mean it is uh, white like the red queen yes so there is a red queen and the, rank, the red king and the, there is a white king and the white queen and the red queen is the most sinister I'm just making some mild minor adjustments you can keep going and the Red Queen is the most sinister figure there. Uh, I think the, the Red King, the White King, is uh, kind of uh, absent-minded and so on, and uh, the Right Queen also. They, they, don't, they don't know how to fight, to, 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 to be efficient, and so on. They are naive, confused creatures, roughly speaking. Now... At the end, Alice advances to the last row. She she becomes, uh, I think Alice is a pawn, and uh, then when she reaches the last row, she uh, she becomes a queen, and then uh, she, the the white has to to mate the, the the red or something like that. This is overall picture of uh, not picture of one aspect of uh, the plot in this book but uh, on her uh, on her travel there uh, she is threatened by the red knight and then she is uh, saved from the red knight by the white knight but the white knight is a very strange creature he is, he is a little <laughs> bit confused is very well wishing but is uh, completely impractical somehow he manages to save alice from the red knight and then she notices that uh, the knight the the white knight uh, rides with a lot with an assortment of all kinds of items which might be necessary i don't know pots and dishes and so on <laughs> and the uh, whole household and among uh, the items that uh, he has is uh, mouse mice trap or mouse trap yeah mouse trap mouse trap and uh Hives, a beehive, a, a beehives. Mm -hmm. the, the beehives would be uh, practical if there would be bees there making honey. So she, she asked him, "What? Why do you need to carry with you beehives?" So he said, "It would be very useful if this attracted certain bees and they uh, they produced money, which which I like very much." And then she asked him, "Why do you have to travel with?" Uh, mouse trap and say i don't see any mice here he said yes right now there are not any mice but suppose there were mice uh, moving around and uh, then i would be very uncomfortable and the trap would be very useful on these occasions so the, there are no bees and there are no trap and he says well i don't know perhaps the bees keep the mice out and the mice keep the bees out 
<laughs> that's that's his answer. So you're like the the knight, the white knight. I am just like the white knight that uh, I have this project and I devote some time to this, and then uh, there is uh, I have to present a paper, and then I write it up very hurriedly and present it, and there it is. <laughs> so the projects keep threatening each other. That's funny. So, so yeah. one project is like the the beehive, and the next one is like the the mousetrap. Right. And Lewis Carroll, though he wasn't just a great author, he was also a logician. Was yeah, he a mathematician he was a, he, or a logician? He was uh, he was not a mathematician, but he was a quite decent logician. And uh, I have a book. I I don't have it here. I mean, I can go and bring it to you to show you. Uh, there is a thick volume like this, of uh, all, which is actually a textbook mm-hmm. in, uh, in, uh, in 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 this type of in this type of logic. And uh, the point is that the exercises are you are you have a lot of assumptions, and you have to find out if this something follows from these assumptions or not. And essentially, uh, this is a, some sort of a, a, mona, a, a calculus of monadic predicates. And uh, the, the point is really a logical exercise to find out if this conclusion is, if a certain conclusion is valid or not. But it significantly predates Frege and first order logic, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, one of my favorite books is. Alice in Wonderland, the annotated edition. Okay. It has all of his original drawings, but then there are all the, sorts of wait, annotations. Wait, wait, wait a minute. It has the Tinial's drawings. When he wanted to publish it, he wanted to make it popular, but actually Tinial was much more famous than uh, Louis Carroll, who was practically unknown or very little known. So he he actually uh, got most of the income from publishing this book. Was uh, Tinel was a famous illustrator, and it wasn't easy to get him. But uh, Louis Carroll decided uh, to get him, and so the book now comes together with uh, original Tillian illustrations. And I saw some uh, attempts to do it with others, and uh, there's no comparison. These are really the best illustrations. Well, I learned something there. But (laughs) this book is filled with all sorts of annotations, and you don't realize when you read it straight through how many references and puzzles and little things he has going on. And you can tell after the fact that he was clearly very interested in logic. Yes. And reference, like, with nobody on the road. Yes, that's and, exactly the point. Yeah. Do you do you happen to remember that story with seeing nobody on the road? Or yes, no one I, is fat? No, yeah. He says, uh, he, it's all kind of people conducting a conversation under different assumptions what they mean but the conversation makes sense to each each one so uh, I think who is it it is uh, the white king who asks 
the white king asks uh, the white bishop or somebody uh, he's attending and if he want if if somebody comes down the road and uh, the light it's it's a kind of sunset or it's it's not full daylight so the white the white bishop i think mm-hmm. or somebody there uh, puts his uh, you know he he's put his uh, palm of hand over his eyes and looks like that you know to mm-hmm. see and he says well i see nobody on the road and the king says wow you can see nobody on the road i hardly can see anybody on this road in this light <laughs> <laughs> so you must have very good eyes and so on and uh, obviously uh, the king interprets it as nobody is a name which denotes a certain person and uh, the bishop interprets it in the usual way mm. and uh, th- that is that is the that's where the joke comes in right. and, and they can and uh, and then they continue so they say uh, the king says to the uh, bishop so you see nobody so uh, you must how does it No, it appears that the bishop himself arrived there, and uh, and the ki- the king uh, asked you, "Did you pass somebody on the road?" And they say, "I saw nobody on the road." So he passed nobody. So the king s- tells him, "Therefore, nobody is running slower than you." <laughs> <laughs> and the bishop b- b- gets offended. He said, "I'm sure I'm doing my best." <laughs> So you see again under this the same misunderstanding, but it makes sense to both of them. Mm-hmm. Because if he says nobody runs slower than you, that means you are the slowest runner. Right. And uh, the bishop uh, thinks that this is a kind of a reprimand or a criticism of him, mm-hmm. and he says, "I do the best I can. I run the best I can." And then that sort of leads into Russell, where nobody plays the role of a subject or an object mm-hmm. in a sentence, but. Mm-hmm. Not exactly. No. It, well, yes, of course. And then you have to replace it with a direct description. With an, uh, yes, with a definite description definite or description. So, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is there. Uh, yeah, you can say Russell inherits this. Mm-hmm. The, this and Russell by himself uh, provides his own story. If you remember, on denoting, he has a whole story about uh, uh, a boat owner that uh, somebody comes and visits him, and uh, he says, uh, I thought uh, your boat was uh, bigger than it is, and, 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 the, and the man becomes, and the, and the host gets offended, because uh, it it implies that he doesn't have a big a big boat as he should have, and he, and he said uh, uh, this is nonsense. The, my boat cannot be bigger than it is. Right. And and the whole thing is a question of uh, in in Russell's way. This is an ingenious. Russell could just put something like that just as a 
as kind of in a moment, even in, in right. live conversation, find out some something like this. And uh, this is very smart because uh, it depends on the scope of the definite description operator, which whether the scope is minimal or maximal and things like that. Right. I certainly admire him for that because mm -hmm. even when I'm I'm in a conversation with you where nobody else is present, mm -hmm. I stumble over my words and I say direct description instead of definite description. Right. But from what I recall, he was just on a dime. He had uh, witticisms to toss out, not just in his papers, but in yeah. conversation. Yes. Uh, something I heard, I wasn't present, I never met him, but I had Sidney Morgenbesser uh, tell about Russell that... Let me try to the story. Uh, yeah, he spoke about uh, he, he spoke about Greek philosophy and uh, the Jews and so on. And he let me try to to see if I can remember exactly the context. Uh, I forgot the name. Who was the, the name of? Uh, famous ancient Greek philosopher who was supposed to go to Egypt and to inquire, to acquire wisdom there and so on. One of the big names of ancient philosophers. Uh, yeah, I don't know who it is. Uh, just give the me the big a, names: Aristotle, Socrates. No, Plato. no, 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 no. The the one the one that preceded them. The one. I know you like Eubulides. No, Eubulides is, la is, is, is later, much... Zeno. Uh, no, 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 no. The, oh, dear. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't want to tell the joke because the joke depends on this. The one of the ancient one who said all is water and all of, you know, the ancient metaphys metaphysicians. The who said all is water? I don't know. There was one who said all is Democritus. water. Democritus. Heraclitus. No, Heraclitus. That's. <laughs> I'm just throwing the, out names. <laughs> no, no, there was a. Demosthenes. No, Demosthenes was a speaker. The 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 the, the, the beginning there was Democritus, but somebody from the same period or perhaps a little earlier who says the all is water. Well, I imagine that the name will come back to you. Well, eventually. perhaps, okay. I mean, you see, this is uh, the this, scourge this of old age that you forget. <laughs> Do you want me to? I can look and, up on my phone. What should I search? Uh, all is water. Okay. All is water philosophy. Yes. All is water Greek philosopher. This was the ancient metaphysicians. Thales of Miletus? Thales? Thales. Yes. Okay. So he mentioned Thales. And then... Hold uh, on. Yeah, so he's renowned as one of the legendary seven wise men yes. of antiquity, and he's remembered primarily for his cosmology based on water as the essence of all matter, yeah. with earth a flat disk floating on a vast sea. Right. Okay, so this is Thales. Okay. And uh, there was apparently a legend that uh, Thales went to Egypt and he got a lot of wisdom by studying with the Egyptians. 
you know, with Egyptians high priests who had their own esoteric knowledge mm-hmm. of the world. So there was such a legend. Uh, so a little old lady, he, he gave a talk, a popular talk, and a little lady... Was it at the YMCA in New York? Uh, might have been that actually he gave, he gave talks at what later became 92Y. Okay. Which is a Jewish institution there. They, okay. He, 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 made, he, made talk, he gave the talks during the Second World War. Uh, but I don't think that this was the case. But he gave a talk to a, to a popular talk. Uh, Rares made money and is living by giving popular talks and writing popular books. Uh, and uh, then a little old lady raises her hand and says, uh, Dr. Russell, uh, you seem to imply that there was a kind of a story about uh, Thales going to Egypt and uh, getting his wisdom there. Now, I read in the Bible that Jeremiah also went to the Egypt. Do you think that they might have met there? And there is, really, this is in the Bible that Jeremiah... Uh, uh, went to Egypt after the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. After the destruction of the first temple, Jeremiah, uh, his, his pupils, he was a very old man, but they they feared some sort of... Uh, repri- there was an act in which the local representative of the Babylonian... The, the, the first temple was uh, destroyed by the Babylonians that uh, the, the high commissioner was uh, killed by a little group of insurgents who still did it and that it was a stupid thing because then it would be it was clear that uh, the babylonians will came and uh, kill everyone and so on so the students of jeremiah took him with them and they flew to egypt that was this is what is written in kings in the in in the Jewish uh, Bible, okay. the, the king took him, and that, that's why she says that Jeremiah also went to Egypt, and she asked him whether they could have met. That it was obviously the history pre- prevented any kind of possibility, but uh, Talis was much before the and so. Mm-hmm. And uh, Russell's on the spur of the moment, he said, yes, my dear lady, they, 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 they in really did meet there. And you, don't, and you know what Tyrus said to Jeremiah? Ta- he said, she said, what? He said, all is water. And do you know what Jeremiah answered to Alice, to, to Tyrus? And uh, she said, what? He said, oh, is me. <laughs> you know, always me. And uh, that's what he answered. And this was the only, Russell continues, attempt of the Jewish spirit and the Greek spirit to converse with each other, but it came to nothing. <laughs> that's funny. So he invented on the spot the whole uh, meeting with a conversation, so and just like that. Yeah, that's... You know. He was a gifted orator. Yes, he gifted. On the other hand, Russell seems to have some blank spots in which he wrote complete nonsense and he thought that he that they make sense really i didn't yeah. know about that yes 
In what areas? Uh, mathematical logic. Okay. <laughs> no, it is known the Principia Mathematica. Okay, there's a big story that according to... I, 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 this requires really a lot of technical detail. Okay, we don't have to go into the Principia. And, and in, in the, but uh, it is known that Russell, the Principia the, is based on the theory of ramified, uh, the type theory and ramified type theory. Mm-hmm. So the ramified type theory is a type theory which is implied by Russell's philosophy. But if you do that, you cannot reconstruct the natural numbers. That's a big problem. From pure logic. You, you cannot. And it is known that you cannot do that. And Russell realized that. Therefore, Russell introduced an additional axiom to the principle Of reducibility? Yes, axiom of reducibility, which will, which will bypass this. Mm-hmm. But the axiom of reducibility is really a way of uh, avoiding the ramified type theory altogether and the principles and so on. So the, and there's nothing logical about it. No, there's nothing logical about it. Right. It is an artificial way of overcoming the difficulty because, look, Russell was a logicist. Both Re- Frege and Russell were logicists. Which, log- which means? He thought that he can, you can uh, derive all of mathematics from pure logic. Right. Now, Frege was also a logicist, but of a different kind. Mm-hmm. He thought that number theory can be derived from pure logic, but geometry not. So they have different uh, notions of what do you mean to derive, but these were, they were both logicists. Mm-hmm. And uh, Russell realized that the whole program wouldn't, uh, couldn't be carried out as it is. So he introduced another axiom, the axiom of reducibility, which in an artificial way avi- avoided the issue. But uh, it, it means really that you give up on the theory of uh, types, mm-hmm. of ramified types. But it, it is phrased in such a way that it is not obvious that it is. And Russell himself says, well, uh, we will have to handle this issue later on to see we are, whether we can avoid it. But without the axiom of reducibility, I cannot get mathematics, and obviously we need mathematics. So Russell, like a good pragmatist that he was in, when it came to his own research, said, okay, we'll assume this, we'll return to it later and see whether we can uh, handle it. Right. Okay. Frege would immediately stop everything. It said, "Wow, is me? There is a contradiction." Mm-hmm. Russell say, "Yeah, there is a contradiction." Yeah. Okay. The, true. But we'll 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 write another volume and we'll deal it with mm-hmm. that. That was a typical Russell. So he said that, and and there it remains. Then all of a sudden, around 1926-27. Uh, Russell thought that he saw a way of keeping the theory of ramified types and without the axiom of reducibility and solving the whole problem and so on, 1927. And he published a paper on that. And uh, this paper appeared as Appendix B in the original edition of the Principia. Hmm. Okay. So you start write, reading the paper, it's a gibberish. It's not clear what he's writing there. Hmm. 
It is really gibberish. So those people who wanted to, were curious to see how he, he does it, uh, thought that he lost his mind or something mm -hmm. like that. And it is known that some mathematicians, uh, in particular Gadel himself, uh, left something undone, but when they tried after his death, when they opened it, it was um, something written very near his death, and when they opened it, they couldn't make any sense out of it. So you, you have some blank outs like that, that you, you know, if you saw beaut uh, Beautiful Mind, this, uh, I did. you see, so he himself, uh, Russell Crowe, who uh, there, uh, he, 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 the, 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 the real figure, John Nash. John Nash, right. John Nash, who goes a field medal later on for... He got the field medal? I think so. He later on, field. for that, because he... he, he I thought you had to be under 40 to receive that. So what? John Nash was quite... Uh, oh, he got it before he was 40? I think so. For oh, game theory? Oh, yes. I, no, but it was a fixed point theorem. Okay, I'm gonna. I'll just look it up. Just for fun. look it up, and I think he got he got it. Uh, but in any case, this is not a historical truth that John Nash wrote nonsense. But it is a historical. But in the film, uh, when they find when Russell Crowe plays his role, and uh, you remember they come and find out the place in which he, the whole walls are filled with formulas and arguments and yeah. so on, and it makes no sense at all. Right. So they realize that he went crazy. He got the Abel Prize. Okay, fine. That's so the he one got, he got. Okay, okay fine. <laughs> so so I, he did get an important prize to it as a recognition. And not for this, but what what is known as, as a version, a fixed point theorem. Okay. I'd like to switch topics a little bit, though. Wait a minute. Okay. Uh, we come to <laughs> Appendix B. Okay. So Appendix B, when people, it was exactly like that. What he wrote there was nonsense. He couldn't make it. And when they realized that, in the later editions of the Principia, there is no Appendix B. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's funny. There's no Appendix they B. They took it out for him. They took it out for him. And then there was a big uh, convention in honor of Russell, and Gettle asked him whether he succeeded in fixing this uh, lacuna that he cannot use a theory of ramified type to get the natural numbers. And Russell excused himself, saying that there were 20 years that he didn't think about this, and, he, <laughs> and that was the end of it. So Gödel himself was aware of the failure of Russell, and this is again, this is the only case of somebody in his full intellectual capacity who has some sort of an hallucination or intellectual hallucination and makes him write gibberish. That's very interesting. I don't know if it's... Usually it's somebody very old who writes something and you cannot... Uh, Gettle himself did it. Huh. Yeah, I've never looked at Appendix B and there I probably couldn't understand it because of the notation that he used back then. No, I mean, there is no Appendix B. You have to, you, you have to get an early edition of the Principia Mathematica in which there will be Appendix B. Later on, you find Appendix B, there is no Appendix B. But I have both of them, one with, one without. Okay. So. 
So what I wanted to talk about is you've taught at Columbia a number of times a, a seminar on paradoxes yeah. that I unfortunately didn't get to take because you mm. haven't taught it while I was here. Yes. And I think the notion of paradoxes, people just like puzzles yeah. and they grip the, the popular imagination yeah. in a way that some areas of philosophy like uh, nobody passing somebody on the road might right. not might not grip everybody. Yeah, right. um, so I'm wondering what what some of the paradoxes were that you touched on or that oh. you do touch on when you teach that course. Well, there was a Zeno's paradox, the the paradoxes of Zeno, and uh, and there were paradoxes of relativity theory, and there were all all different disciplines. And the idea was that students who uh, concentrate in a particular direction would find a paradox uh, or a group of paradox which you can in which they can uh, write a paper write a paper one was in epistemology for the surprise examination paradox. could we could we okay keep going i think we've talked about that one yes okay but what are some of the other ones the other ones were uh paradox of the of decision theory for instance there there was one paradox of decision theory that i think you mentioned to me once before that i found very surprising mm -hmm. uh, and i let me see if i can piece it together and then you could if if it rings any bells you can tell me if this is if this is the right uh, one but the one i'm thinking of is it's sort of like a game show design where you've got you're told that you have two boxes oh uh, yeah yeah and yeah. Your Newcomb's paradox. Newcomb's paradox. Yeah. yeah Can okay. we talk about Newcomb's paradox? Yeah, sure. Could sure. you explain it for me? Okay. Okay. So, Newcomb's paradox. Newcomb was a physicist, so this was a paradox which was made up by a physicist. Is it meant to be a a paradox about physics? No, it's meant to be a, a paradox about, in a way, perhaps, but it's it's really a kind of a metaphysical paradox. Okay. Okay. So you, you, you are given two boxes and uh, you can either choose to take both of them and then you get the money which is in both of them, the, the total sum, or only to take the right one. Okay, so there are two boxes. You can either choose... Each one has money in it. Each, each one has money in the same or each one has money in it. And you can either pick both boxes or just one box. Or, the, or one particular box. The box on the right. Yes. Okay. okay. Now, th this is a paradox. So, uh, obviously, uh, common sense would teach you to pick both of them. Because, right. uh, because then... If uh, they both have a non-empty... Yes, uh, it depends what is the sum. I mean, Right, but if, if there's money in both, then you're guaranteed to get... More, more money by picking both, both boxes right. than just one. Okay. But now comes here comes this, the, the the thing which makes it paradoxical. Okay. You are told that a superior being, a much superior being that you cannot imagine how this being thinks. Something like God. Well, okay, yeah, but in any case, much more superior to you uh, has knows what you will choose because okay. he, he knows how your brain works and so on. So it is something, it's not God, but somebody whose ability with respect to you is God-like almost. Sure. So he 
knows what you will choose. And therefore, based on his knowledge, he prepared the boxes. Okay. And he prepared it so that if he knows that you will choose both of them, he put in each one of them a small amount of money. Let's say $10. He he put... Okay. But if he knows that you will only choose the right one, he put in it a million dollars. Okay. Now, which one will you choose? Okay. So I just want to reconstruct it. So we have the two boxes before us. And we have the person who, or the godlike figure for me, yes. who presumably knows what I'm going to do. Yes. And if he has determined that I'm going to pick both boxes, right. he puts $10 in both boxes. Yeah, the sums are more realistic in the setting, but that's fine. But if I'm only going to pick one box, the right box, the right box then he puts a million dollars in that box. Right, something like that. So... So there are two. Okay, I think I think I see what you're saying, but I think that the the money's the money has to be different for the paradox to be to make sense. What do you mean the money has to be different? It's dollars. Okay, okay. So then, I would obviously pick one box. Why? But because you say there is no causal relation between right. what you pick, the money is there already. Right. So you don't cause, and you can check it. You, you, you may, the whole setting is that you can check it. That what that after you make your decision, the money remains the same as it was before. Right. So there is no causal relations between your decision and the money. So obviously you should take the both of them because if if all that you are reasoning is by causal decision then you can you should choose both of them. But if I choose both boxes, then wouldn't I just get $20? Yes, that's it. But I want the million dollars. Yes, but that uh, that's a paradox. I I'm I'm now I'm lost. <laughs> because you want you want the million dollars, right? Right. But so you choose one box. Yes. But your your decision has no causal effect and this can be verified. Okay, so imagine a scenario like that. There is a big audience. Uh, this is done on a, on, in a public appearance. Okay? okay. And so there is on the stage, you, you are, uh, there's, there's a stage, you are, your turn come to be on that stage. Then there is an arena and people see that and the people who are in the arena they see what is in the boxes. Right. But you cannot see what is in the boxes. And in the arena, suppose your parents are there and they wish you all well. And they see whatever is in these two boxes. They see either $20 or a million dollars and zero. Yes, but they say take both boxes, whatever they see in the boxes, they, they, their advice to you is obviously take both boxes because you will get a little bit more if you get take both boxes. So they wish you I to see cho- what you're to, saying. To, to, to choose. And yet, if you choose bo- both boxes, you get a teeny amount. But if, for, you see, they say, yes, okay, here there is a million 
and here there is uh, $10 a million here and $10 there. Perhaps it makes a difference between a million and a million and ten. It doesn't matter if there is this. Why shouldn't he choose the two boxes? So they wish that you choose the two boxes. But they cannot, but of course, you don't know what there is in two boxes. So there is, it is as if your parents and your well-wishers are in a different world. They see there and they say, yes, choose, uh, yes, go on, John, to choose the two boxes. You will lose nothing because they see that the boxes are not affected by what you choose. Right. And, and, and then, lo and behold, if whenever they see two, that the two boxes are like this and you take the example, then their sum is small. And if you, they choose only the right box, then the sum is big. So is there a solution to this paradox? Yeah, there is a kind of solution, uh, which I think is the right solution. The right solution is, first of all, that the paradox depends on certain assumptions. That this is a superior bidding uh, creature, that, uh, that he knows he can do that. Maybe the story is false. Right. Okay? And you can always construct a paradox if you make additional presuppositions that are contradictory. Right. Okay. So how do we know that these additional presuppositions are not contradictory. Convince me to believe the story. I might, I might disbelieve the various assumptions there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there is a, a, how do you verify that they, that they, that how can you verify that these assumptions really hold? Okay. I, I can say, well, look, I mean, <laughs> you give me contradictory assumptions, of course there is a paradox. You know the paradox about the, uh, the barber who shaves all people who do not shave themselves. Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you tell it, though? Okay. So this is a paradox in which there is a little town. Isn't it uh, Russell's paradox? Like Russell mentions it. I don't think that it is Russell, but Russell explicitly explains it. Okay. So the assumptions are natural. I mean, there's a very little town and there's a, a barber in this town. And uh, any, anyone who doesn't shave himself goes to the barber. Okay. And the barber shaves him. So this is the assumption. So the question is, does a barber shave himself or doesn't he shave himself? So each one of them gives a contradiction. Because if he shaves himself, he doesn't go to the barber. Yeah, be, yes, because he shaves... But if I, he goes to the barber, then he doesn't shave himself. Right, right. Something like that. No, or the paradox is like this. All those who shave themselves do not go to the barber. Okay? Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and uh, so this is the assumption of the paradox. And... Uh, the answer to this paradox is the presuppositions are false. There is no such sound. There is no just because and it's the contradictory. because the paradox himself doesn't tell, uh, gives you a contradiction. The assumptions give you a contradiction. If you ask about the barber, does the barber shave himself or doesn't he shave himself? And is this pair if he shaves himself, he has to go to the barber. He is the only barber, and so on. Mm -hmm. Is this paradox at all related to the liar sentence? Yes. 
Could you tell me what the liar sentence is? And, and okay, let me say. first of all, the answer to this paradox is your presuppositions are false. Right, that's how there you, is no such town and there is no such barber and so on. But there and are Russell, other paradoxes Russell, that can be resolved. Right, but this isn't one of them. This is not one of them, and the Russell himself gives this resolution. He says uh, the answer is very clear: <laughs> the presupposition are false. But when you say they're false, you mean that they're contradictory. Yes, there is no such a town. There is no okay. this. Now, the liar paradox cannot be explained on the assumption that something is false. So what is the liar paradox? The real liar paradox. It's not the paradox which is usually says all Cretans are liars and so this is Epimenides. The Epimenides is a paradox in which somebody says all Cretans are liars. And it turns out that he himself is a Cretan. But this by itself doesn't give you a, a paradox. When you say Epimenides, are you saying that he, he devised this paradox? No, this is a... I, I don't know, but this is what it is called in, in, okay. in the classical literature. Okay. It is referred to as the, the Epimenides. Okay. Because, okay, so Epimenides is a, is a Cretan, and he says that all Cretans are liars. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean that uh, to be a liar? Can a liar be always says a lie or, or mostly says a lie and so on? So there is really no contradiction here if you analyze it in, in this manner. Okay, and that's, you're saying that that's sort of the original version, yes. but it's not the real paradoxical version. Right. The, what, real, what's the, the re real paradoxical version is, is given later in You Bully This. Okay, and I know that Eubulides is one of your favorite yes. philosophers. Yes, because he, his paradoxes are deep paradoxes, and they gave rise to the whole, a whole literature. And I think he had like six or seven of them. He, yeah, had, he, he has the bald man, he yeah. has... Uh, the, he has a Soritus. The Sorites. And he has, uh, and yet the liar paradox. Okay. The liar paradox is simply a person says... What I am saying now is not true. Okay? Okay. So, nothing is false. He is making this assertion. Right. Now, is it true or not true? If it is true, then what he's saying now is not true. And if it is not true, then it is true. Right. So, there is no false presupposition there. He simply makes a statement. Mm-hmm. That's all. And anyone can make such a statement. So this is the true liar. Okay. Now there, is, there are other versions of this in which, no, which do not involve talk. But uh, there is a room and uh, on this room there is a blackboard and or in the blackboard there is a single sentence which says uh, the sentence that is written on the blackboard in room 96 is not true. It turns out that this is room 96. Then again, you get a paradox. I see. And this, this has spawned a tremendous amount of literature, right? People are still debating it today. Not really, I think. More, really? More, not really. It's uh, more or less known how to... Really? I, yeah. I thought people were still thinking about it. No, this, there was a very rich... Might be, but it is... Uh, it is more or less uh, 
it it is more or less assumed or people usually agree that if you have the truth predicate inside the language and if in the language you can construct so self-referential sentences or sentences that refer to themselves by descriptions, what is written on the blackboard and, and so and so, then you get a contradiction. And the answer is yes, natural language has contradictions. Okay. And we don't pull... And, and the uh, moral so of that is that you cannot do the semantics of the language inside the language itself. So one way of treating the paradox is just accepting that it's paradoxical and it's a feature of our language. Yes, and the, and the natural language is not an ideal language. The natural language which allows you to do something like that is really contradictory if you try to formalize it completely. I see. And formalizing it completely in this case means giving rigorous rules. Yes, giving rigorous rules. And so there is what's called the Tarskian hierarchy of languages. So there is... A, Tarski, who gave you your PhD at Berkeley. Yes, yeah. Okay, so the Tarskian hierarchy is, is, first of all, a language, and then there's a language which gives the semantics of the this language, and then a language which gives a semantic to the second language, and so on. So each language is more powerful by because it gives a semantics to the other language below it but not to itself and and then it can go through all the ordinals and the so this is a concept that's probably not familiar to most people when you say that one language gives semantics to another language yes. you're saying that it sort of defines what the rules mean for truth or falsity okay uh, in in the hierarchy right okay so it gives semantics. There is, a, there is a standard way of giving semantics. This is all very well defined. That means natural language cannot be formalized as it is, but certain parts of it which are important can be formalized. And natural language, so to speak, enables us to move in this hierarchy, but no language can give semantics for itself. You must have a higher order language which gives the semantics for the lower language. So if you want truth, you can give in a language truth, a definition, a truth definition for the lower languages, but not to itself. Mm. That, is, that is the picture that arises. This is a task and picture of semantic of language, and that is the answer to the liar paradox. So the liar paradox is a real paradox, and uh, the task and approach is that... Uh, the natural language is too rich, and if you are not careful, you get contradictions in natural language. But you have to replace it by a hierarchy of languages, and that's, that's the case. And it is known that if something, what we call a semantic predicate, is like a truth predicate, a predicate which gives you the semantics, or through which the semantics can be defined. Hmm. So that is the task and answer to that. Then there's been all kinds of playing variations with this that you can have still. Uh, it's a long story. So, but this has been treated very, uh, very much in, in, in this way. And from this you can, it is, 
it is not, I mean, actually the way Gödel find found his incompleteness result was to use something similar, but uh, uh, I don't. I don't want to go into this. This is a, will give bring us into deep water. But Gödel, and this I think can be almost certainly proved, got his idea for the proof of the incompleteness theorem by considering. Uh, possibilities along this line, what what a language can say and what a language cannot say. So was he influenced by Tarski then? No, on the contrary. Tarski gave, Tarski is, there is what's called indefinability of truth. Mm -hmm. Tarski proved the indefinability of truth using Gettel's result. I see. You see, Gettel's result involves various uh, so to speak, tricks. And uh, one of the, and one of the th tricks is to give a syntactic description in which a language can give its own syntax. And this is can be done. Hmm. The language which gives its own syntax, but what is uh, uh, there is a story there. I can go through the story and give you an outline of the whole thing, but we will have to go to through Richard's paradox. Richard's paradox, though, I imagine, is a bit too much. Well, actually, Richard's par so Richard's paradox is uh, the paradox about naming numbers, right? Something like that. Okay, it, it is something like that. The, I mean, the least number definable in so and so many words, right? Yes, yeah, something. Okay, like let's talk about it. No, the, no. First of all, yeah, but but this we have to find. First of all, we have to say something about the diagonalization method, and this is Cantor. You, the thing starts with Cantor, then there is Richard, then there is Gedo. Okay. Well, this is a long story. Okay, let's. Uh, you see, Cantor, the genius who established set theory, gives let, actually can, let's let's save this topic for another time because okay, I think sure. th this one might be a bit too. It's very interesting. Maybe we'll talk about it okay. next week or in a couple of days. Yeah. But for now, so can what we, paradox do you want to? <laughs> let's talk about the surprise exam. Okay, so surprise exam. Uh, teacher comes to class and tells them uh, next week there will be a surprise examination and that means you won't know the day before that the day later there will be an examination that the tomorrow you won't know the, right the uh, idea of a surprise exam is that you don't know it's going to happen no but the, here the surprise exam, exam is defined exactly as an exam that it's given Thursday, but you don't know on Wednesday whether it will be given on Thursday or not. Okay, so the surprise exam, it's always going to be on a Thursday, but you don't know if it's going to happen no, on no, Wednesday. No, 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 no. I give you an example. It says, look, let's take a concrete situation. American universities, the teaching days are five days in a week. Okay. Okay. So you come and say, Next week, there will be a surprise examination, and that means 
you won't be able to predict that you, you you wouldn't be able to predict the day before the exam is given on that the exam will be given tomorrow okay so you're told there will be a surprise exam next yeah. week yes but then okay so you don't know if it's going to be monday on monday you don't know if it's going to be tuesday but if it hasn't happened then on thursday you know it has to be on friday if the, you're guaranteed to have one yes okay and, and this is the way that the paradox works okay because on the one because this is one way and then Wh where's the paradox is the paradox that okay, okay. on thursday you, no. it's no longer a surprise exam because you know it's going to come yes but you believe the teacher that the teacher what the teacher says and one okay the teacher does the following the teacher gives this declaration okay and uh, the teacher thinks to himself, okay, you know what? I will choose the day by, by a toss of a, by a lottery, okay? I will just draw the name of the day. So I don't know, and uh, I just, I, I wouldn't, I don't know and uh, what the lottery, but I will make it so that what the lottery does, that is the day. So I, nobody knows, and he thinks, the student certainly cannot know what th this lottery did. Right. I mean, no means be sure that there is an exam. You don't know. The students argue like this. Look, the exam cannot be given on Friday because if it wasn't given by Thursday and there is an exam, then I will know that it must be on Friday. So the surprise examination cannot be given on Friday. Right. Now, since we know this now, we can again know that it's the last day is Thursday, but by the same reasoning, it cannot be on Thursday. Right. So they go back, 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 and they don't... They, I see. And they think that they have proven that there cannot be an exam. Okay, so... Then they are very surprised when it is given on Wednesday. <laughs> so they, they have proven to themselves that it can't be given, because it can't be given on Friday, because they would know yeah, on Thursday. Right. By the same reason, then, it can't be given on Thursday, because they'll know on Wednesday. Right. So they've effectively ruled out that there will ever be a surprise exam by yes. their reasoning, but yeah. lo and behold, the professor gives it to them anyway. Yes. So okay. how, how do you respond to that, then? Well... Uh, the standard response, which is essentially the correct response, if you don't, is you have no grounds to consider that what the teacher told you is the truth. Suppose the teacher always was truthful with respect to all kinds of factual things. But this is a claim that is being made on your own knowledge. And your own knowledge is is knowledge that is derived by assuming certain things that the teacher told you are true. Now the teacher, for example, the teacher, there might be some sort of mechanism so that if the exam did not, was not, if the exam was not given by the, the first five days of the week, then there is an automatic mechanism that gives it on Friday. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this can be, you can be convinced that there is such a mechanism. 
okay? Or you know that there is such a mechanism, that the administration has set up such a mechanism that if the exam was not given on this way, it was given on Friday. This is it. But what the teacher tells you is more than that. He tells you that you will be not be able to know. That means he makes a promise about your own knowledge and you have no position to assume that this part of what the teacher told you is true. So the problem with the story is the assumptions that they're making aren't uh, grantable. Yes, hmm. you you don't you you if you think that you you don't have any grounds to believe the teacher if the beliefs involve something on your own knowledge. Okay. Because knowledge is something that you can deduce logically from what the teacher says, and. As long as it is some events in the world that you have no that doesn't relate to that you can believe it, but the teacher cannot is not guaranteed to be a, all the time telling the truth if it is about your own knowledge what you can do there is a kind of a cycle there mm -hmm. and this is a result this result was given by Quan and it is a correct uh, 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 answer, but this now happens a whole uh, area of investigations about what you can deduce. This is really an epistem a result in epistemology. What you can know and what you cannot know. Hmm. Okay. So what are some of the implications? The implications is like that. That first of all, the teacher cannot guarantee 100% that what he told the students will be realized. He has no control over that. So suppose the teacher decides to choose the day by tossing a, by a, some sort of random device. He will pick uh, the name of the day from a sack in which there are uh, all kinds of little pieces of paper and he will open by lottery. He will open the ticket and see what the day is. So. Now, if the day happens to be, if he opens it as Friday, then this means that he himself didn't fulfill his promise. So you cannot have a surprise examination in which you are guaranteed that your promise will be fulfilled. Hmm. And now there is what is the optimal condition for the teacher to make this failure of fulfillment minimal. I see. So you, it opens a whole lot of what are the strategies for the t teacher, how, how the lottery should work. And the, but the, the conclusion is, you want to have a surprise examination, you must include that with a certain probability it will not be a surprise examination. Hmm. Otherwise, of course, you'll run into the, yes. the first issue where it's entirely predictable. Right. Right. Now, it turned out that this paradox had an histor a real historical origin at the time of the Second World War. Hmm. At the time of the Second World War, the Nazis bombarded many big cities indistinctly. They, and there was what's called uh, national defense or these were people who were 
mobilized in order to supervise other people going into their shelters and uh, or um, manning their anti-aircraft guns and so on. That means uh, those who either directed what other people would do or uh, shot against the attacking planes. Now, shooting against the attacking planes was usually you miss them, but you could have not missed them. So this was a civil defense. Hmm. So they were, there was a civil defense. Now, the people in charge of the whole thing, the high command, they wanted, like a teacher which gives an exam, to make sure that the civil defense operates correctly. And the way to do it is to declare a surprise examination. They would say, well, next week there will be an exercise in which civil defense preparations will be checked. We'll see if this. But you won't know a day before before, because if you know the day before, they, they will also obviously make it like somebody who crumbs the day before on the exam. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, will be pre you will have enough time to prepare so that you will be passed with this perfectly great okay so they want to put them under pressure to prepare but not allow them the outlet of prepare knowing the day before and so that they can prepare just for that day so that that was and that was a real situation i think it was in norway or some scandinavian in which this was a good method of change of forcing the civil defense to have a good pre general preparation which will hold for no matter what day they will give it. Hmm. That's funny. That's a good story. That, 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 that's, a, that's a story. You think it's somebody's invention? No, it was, it was a real situation in Second World War. And you come to think of it, it is a real situation also in class. If somebody... Look, I mean, students are not motivated by what the teacher says or they, they, they have to... Uh, go over the material and you have to learn it and so on. Students usually postpone it until the time of the exams. Now the teacher wants them to f force them to go over the material without knowing that there will be an exam. So he says there will be an exam, but he won't know it before. That's all. It is the same kind of situation. Now you can see, now there is a lot of probability calculus to analyze this, what will happen. You can see that if you, if you say, for instance, not next week, but if you say next month, then obviously you can have a surprise examination without very small probability that there will not a surprise mm -hmm. examination. Because uh, choosing from the next 30 days is really is practically impossible. Mm -hmm. So if you tell them there will be a surprise, you can have also a maximum choice to give them for the next week, for the next two weeks, and so on. Hmm. You see, if you give them for next month, they will not cram for things. They will just postpone it. Yeah, but if so they know it's, it's, a, it's, it's a slim chance. It's a, yes, it's a slim chance. But So they can wait. They can wait. But if you know next week it will be, then... You prepare moderately well without For Monday. Cr without cramming just the day yeah. before. Right. Okay. So it it is really a very interesting uh, example in epistemology. It is. Okay, professor. 
Thank you so much. This okay. was this was really fun. Thanks okay. for talking with Good. me about paradoxes. Good. Well, it was my fun. Yeah, me too. Because okay. I I like these kinds of uh, things. Okay. There's a huge literature. Of it.